Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 23rd, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest, Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez, will look over the party's electoral map going into the 2020 presidential primaries. And in the second segment, Kaylee Levitt, local activist with Zero Waste Collective, Orange County, will slice through our premises, our options to trim our consumption. We'll be right back with Tom Perez after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez, originally from Buffalo, New York, and a product of a Jesuit education. Tom Perez is a bit of a black sheep among all his siblings, the five of them who followed their father's career as physicians. Tom Perez completed his Bachelor's of Arts in International Relations at Brown University, his Juris Doctor at Harvard Law School, where he clerked for Attorney General Ed Meese, and his Master's in Public Administration at the Kennedy School of Government. He clerked for Judge Zita Weinschink in Colorado, served as Federal Civil Rights Prosecutor for the Department of Justice, worked for Senator Ted Kennedy, served as the Director of the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services in the final years of the Clinton administration, was then elected for a term to the Montgomery County, Maryland, that is, council in 2002. Tom Perez was appointed by Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley to serve as Secretary of the Maryland Department of Labor Licensing Regulation, January 2007, and served as Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights of Obama Administration. Tom Perez served in the last three years of Obama Administration as the Secretary of Labor the confirmation of which was the first Senate confirmation vote in history in which a cabinet member's confirmation received a party-line vote considered at that time historic and a harbinger of current times. After the November 2016 elections and in a tight race against Keith Ellison, Tom Perez was elected chairman and immediately appointed Keith Ellison as deputy chair, Mr. Ellison, who now is serving as Attorney General of Minnesota. After Tom Perez's recent lap through California, he comes to us today from the Democratic National Headquarters in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Tom Perez. Uh, it's great to be with you and with all of your listeners. Well, you are dialing in this call to the Orange County area where the Orange County Congressional Districts really create quite the stir. I wanted to know where the Orange County Congressional Delegation figures in your, let's just say the primary season before we talk, when we're going to focus on the primary strategy versus the longer term. Orange County is a huge part of our overall strategy to make sure that we organize in every zip code. We lead with our values in every zip code. We talk about health care and good jobs and uh, an economy that works for everyone in every zip code, and we win. Uh, as we saw in 2018, uh, orange is the new blue. Uh, having uh, winning, running the table in uh, those key house races with uh, with Gil and Katie and Harley and and Mike, uh, 
in those uh, key house races. And what was really impressive was uh, the voter turnout for the midterm election in Orange County. It was the highest uh, since 1970. And our goal is to make sure we sustain it, not just during the primary season, but all the way through November 2020. So we expand our House margins. We expand our state house margins, and we elected Democrat to the White House. It did take a lot of resources from the DCCC, though, from uh, to get that turnout. It was a heavy lift, and those are resources that are going to be uh, very valuable throughout the country. So, how how does California's March third primary organize your calculations? Well, uh, the day that people are voting in the first. A presidential uh, caucus in Iowa, people here in California will be receiving their ballots as well. So moving up is going to put California in, I think, a really enviable position to have real influence, not only in the presidential cycle, but I think the interest is going to generate unprecedented turnout for the Democratic primary. And that's going to help us to continue to organize in places like Orange County, because Again, um, the, the turnout in 2018, to give uh, your listeners some context, the turnout was higher in 2018 than it was in 2012, which was an actual presidential cycle. So there's a lot of voter excitement in Orange County. I think there's a lot of, we've got great candidates there. There's a lot of energy. And there's a recognition in Orange County that Donald Trump uh his values don't reflect the values of Orange County. They don't re- reflect the values of California, and they frankly don't reflect the values of America. And so I think on March the 3rd, you're going to continue to see uh, record turnout in California, and that's going to carry us. That momentum is going to continue all the way through the election. And we're excited to be uh, part of a, a broad team of people investing in organizing and yes. making sure that Democrats win up and down the ticket. So is it a new situation for you in your tactics as the the party chair for uh, the kind of optics that you're getting? There's been some amazing kinds of appearances. Our congressional delegation, where they've appeared in congressional hearings and on uh, all kinds of media, is the, are those optics that you're finding are going to be... Uh, a subversive device to be using, or not so subversive device, a, a, a potent device to be putting out there in the campaigns on a national basis? I think the most important thing uh, voters want to see are actions. And the uh, House of Representatives, under the leadership of Speaker Pelosi, and with uh, great leadership from the Orange County uh, Democratic delegation, is taking action to address the issues that voters care about most. Uh, We've passed a series of bills in the U.S. House to ensure that if you have a pre-existing condition, you can keep your health care. Bills designed to ensure that we bring down the exorbitant costs of prescription drugs. Bills that are designed to stabilize the health care exchange. There's been an unrelenting attack uh, on the health care exchange by Republicans. They've tried to sabotage it. Democrats have passed a series of bills to stop that. There have been a series of bills uh, to help... um, Uh, people in the workplace to be free from discrimination. So you're judged by the content of your character, not uh, who you love. uh, uh, Bills to help dreamers. And I think those are the actions that people are looking for. Unfortunately, the U.S. Senate 
under McConnell is a graveyard for important ideas. And that's why we've got to take over the Senate, too, so that these bills can become law. Well, what I, I really want to focus your attention on, I, I can appreciate that uh, and I, it's their well-worn stump kinds of uh, talking points, but I to speak to the specifics of what's going on in Orange County, there's been some amazing kinds of appearances in the name of consumer protection, uh, income inequality, that uh, when Katie Porter put out the, the, when she talked with Jamie Dimon about her constituent running 700 bucks in the red on a monthly basis, looking at his 32 million compensation package, that I think you've got some amazing optics. I don't know that you're telling me you're going to use those at all on a, in a general way. My point is that we're not only talking, and uh, uh, Congresswoman Porter and others are doing a great job in shining a light on the compelling issues of our time, income inequality, uh, the need to ensure that our economy works for everyone, not just a few at the top. Those hearings have been compelling, and uh, their leadership has been really impressive. What I'm saying in addition, and it's not talking points, it's facts, is that Democrats have been passing bills to make good on the promises that were made in the 2018 campaign. What voters in Orange County are going to ask in 2020 is, what have you been doing to follow up on what you said in the 2018 campaign? And what all of the newly elected members of Congress and other Democrats are going to be able to say is that we followed up on what we said we were going to do to reform our democracy, to to uh, address the health care issues I'm talking about, to, to address income inequality, as, as um, Congresswoman Porter correctly pointed out, to hold, um, to, to hold this administration accountable. The culture of corruption uh, is um, you know, virtually unprecedented from this administration, and the oversight that all of these uh, wonderful new members have participated in, I think, is really, really important to uh, shining a light on, on this administration. So I'm proud that they're there, and we're working hard to make sure that they'll continue to be there for many years to come. For those of you who've just joined us, this is Ask a Leader. My guest is Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez. We're talking, we're mainly focusing on the primary season, um, but how are the 50, is the 50 state strategy in place for 2020? Are you going that strategy with 50 states? Not only 50 states, but the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico and our territories, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that we've become an every zip code party again and every state and territory party, and we're going to continue to do that. And you saw the fruits of our labor in both 2017 and 2018. We invested heavily in Alabama and helped Doug Jones get elected. 2018, uh, we, you know, we have a governor of Kansas who's a Democrat. We've got members of Congress who are Democrats from Oklahoma, Kansas, South Carolina, uh, and elsewhere, places where we were told Democrats can't compete, Democrats can't win. I firmly believe that we can win everywhere. And why do I believe that? It doesn't matter where you live across America. You want to make sure you can have access to health care. Then make sure where you want to live across America. Uh, people want to make sure that their elected officials are fighting uh, to ensure we bring down the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, Pre-existing conditions aren't just Democrats or Republicans or Californians or um, you know, people from Maryland. They're, pre-existing conditions exist everywhere, and we're fighting for people everywhere, and that's why we've been able to win, and that's the basic mission of the DNC is to help elect Democrats 
uh, up and down the ballot everywhere. And I'm very proud that we have again become an every state party. So if there is a, a great turnout, there's f- voters that are engaged, but the, the concern is now while the contracts for voting machines and the voting systems, they're going out the door. How much, Tom Perez, is the Democratic National Committee setting its sights on verifiable election results? Well, I wish we had more help from the federal government on the issue of election integrity. Uh, We're at war right now. It's a cyber war. Uh, There were a number of uh, foreign efforts to interfere in the 2016 campaign. They've been well documented. And when we're at war, the commander in chief should be at the helm uh, addressing this cyber war. But he's obviously compromised. He's asleep at the switch. He's affirmatively said that he would uh, accept help again from Russia uh, or elsewhere in the 2020 campaign. If people want to try to get dirt and interfere, uh, that's unconscionable. Uh, Election integrity is not a uh, it's not a right versus left issue. It's a right versus wrong issue. This is about our democracy. And that's why we've worked so hard, not only to make sure our own uh, DNC uh, tech infrastructure is is fortified from cyber attacks, but we've been working with our, our partners in state parties and with state governments to make sure that election officials are uh, taking the necessary steps that they're looking now. You don't wait till six months before an election to get a new election machine. And, and we've been working with a number of jurisdictions uh, to make sure that they have the right systems in place and to encourage them uh, as best we can to purchase those systems so that we can ensure that every vote is counted and votes aren't stolen. That's what election integrity is about. Well, Jennifer Cohn, who's an amazing investigative reporter, is watching like a hawk for which states have been sending, um, having contracted out with some uh, machines that are not unhackable. And uh, Georgia, South Carolina, New Jersey, Delaware, and I think Florida, just within the last couple of days at the at this taping, uh, that they have uh, approved a, a, a hackable uh, local system. And there are counties in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Texas, Kentucky, Indiana, Kansas, and a few here, but not in Orange County, but a few around California and New York. Uh, they're, those, they're rejecting unhackable handmarked paper ballots. Is the DNC involved at all to try to intervene to... So hold a standard for that, even though it is a much decentralized kind of administration. Yeah, I mean, uh, your last sentence illustrates the challenge. Yes. Um, our election system is completely decentralized, and it's not just uh, 50 states we have to deal with. It is uh, hundreds of counties uh, and other jurisdictions that we have to deal with. I think that it, that sort of decentralization is one of the real invitations for uh, for challenges and mischief. And that is the way that it works. And, and what adds a layer of additional difficulty to that is that the federal government is exercising no leadership to uh, provide uh, sufficient funding, sufficient technical assistance uh, to our state and local election authorities. Uh, and that's because they don't they're not interested uh, in 
uh, an accurate and full count. They just want to make sure they win. And that and and if they have to cheat, they'll cheat. Does the that's, DNC have that's res- unfortunate? Does the DNC have resources to to uh, send the cadre into the the local governments to oversee some of those contracts that are being let out? Well, we I mean, the, a, a local government is not going to uh, outsource its uh, responsibility there to the DNC. Not that I mean, and but oversight. So of, that that yeah. uh, well, I mean that's why we are one of the things that we're building across the country is a voter protection infrastructure that is enabling us to address a myriad of challenges around ensuring that every eligible person can vote and that those votes are counted. And those and and what our voter protection teams across the country are doing are, for instance. Uh, going after unlawful purges, uh, going after uh, laws that are designed to make it harder for people to vote, especially people of color, going uh, and meeting with elections officials to ensure that they have uh, election machinery in place that is indeed secure. We have a person on our team who oversaw the uh, election system in Virginia, and he oversaw the decommissioning of election machines and the movement to election machines that had better sources of verification. We hired him because we want him to go to other jurisdictions to provide that same sort of technical assistance. The challenge that we have is that some states and some localities want our help because they want to make sure that things work and work well. And other states frankly, don't want our help because I'm not sure that they have the will to ensure that uh, every vote gets counted. And that's that's dangerous. And that's unfortunate. That's why we're going to keep building voter protection infrastructure. So I'd like to go with, uh, I know we um, have a lot to cover in a short time. I'd like to go with some of the policy areas that will become eventually platform planks. But to the point of what's getting cleared in these debates, climate percolating in the uh, local Democratic ranks here in Orange County. It's a resolution to force a climate debate. What, Tom Perez, have you planned for? Is this a chip to engage young people, if not to make them habitual voters, working on the uh, organizing around climate discussions and uh, organizing a climate debate? We're going to be discussing in the debates all of the issues that are front and center for the American people, health care, climate change, making sure the economy works for everybody and not just a few at the top, Uh, making sure we address issues of women's reproductive health and deal with the challenges confronting our immigrant communities. The attacks on organized labor are absolutely unconscionable across this country. And if we want to build a sound middle class, we need to build a sound labor force. Uh, The attacks on our democracy through dark money are unconscionable. And we can't fix anything if we continue to have dark money and all those forces that are making it impossible to get things done. I'm very proud of the work that we're going to continue to do in the climate space because climate change is a real serious existential threat. It did not get enough attention in the 2016 election. And when I was beginning our conversations with all of the networks, I made clear that we want to discuss issues in the Democratic primaries. We don't want to talk about hand size. We want to talk about health care. We want to talk about climate change. And so what we have put in place 
is a system that is going to ensure that we're going to have a very, very uh, robust and spirited discussion about climate change. And the good news about climate change is that what we don't have to discuss is whether it's real. The other side denies the science. They claim that climate change isn't real. We don't have to spend a nanosecond of time discussing that because every Democrat knows that we need to follow the science. And our debate is going to be about how do we develop uh, bold, aggressive measures to uh, address the threats of climate change, uh, to grow an economy that uh, can take this opportunity to expand jobs in the clean energy economy and to make sure that we leave no one behind in the process of doing that. That's so what we're going to focus on. How will the DNC, as a ter- in terms of debate topics and the party platform planks, take up infrastructure? How visionary do you want to force with your leadership? How visionary will the party be about leading with investing in much smarter long-term projects than uh, really traditional conventional ones that are, we're going to say we're quaint when we're stuck with them if we continue with them? Well, this president promised that uh, infrastructure would be front and center in his administration, and here we are entering a presidential election cycle, and they have done absolutely nothing on that. But what will DNC do? for for for, Yes. Democrats have a very bold vision on infrastructure. Infrastructure is not simply about roads and bridges. It's about building a clean energy economy. It's about making sure we make investments in infrastructure for broadband in rural America so that you can have uh, job opportunities in every zip code across America. Infrastructure is an opportunity to grow good middle-class jobs by making sure we have project labor agreements and prevailing wage requirements. What Republicans wanted to do with infrastructure was basically help their investors in Wall Street uh, fund projects that were already going to get built so that investors can get more money. We want to grow good middle-class jobs, and we recognize that We have opportunities across urban, rural, suburban America to use infrastructure to grow and strengthen the middle class and address chronic challenges. We've got to address the challenges of Flint and the infrastructure that uh, or the lack of infrastructure that led to the crisis in Flint. And we've got to make sure that we are uh, doing so in a manner that is going to provide job opportunities in communities across this country. I'm very excited about our vision for broad, robust infrastructure that is going to enable us, frankly, to tackle a lot of challenges simultaneously. With due respect, though, building infrastructure just for the sake of building and building and creating jobs, if we build not smart, if we build that obligates us to continuing a, an excessive carbon and a water footprint, um, what is the DNC's vision uh, in uh, addressing the, the longer-term, more beneficial pu- future? Well, that's, again, that, that's, I, I invite people to look at the Democratic platform on infrastructure. It is broad-based. It is robust. It is inclusive. It enables us, the, the, one of the best ways to immediately tackle the challenges of climate change is through a very robust infrastructure program that enables us to transform to a clean energy economy, to enable us to replace not only roads and bridges, but uh, so many um, uh, pipe infrastructures across our country that are 
over uh, that, that, that are so old, if, if they were people, they'd be on Medicare. And that is the, the essence of the vision of the Democratic Party. And the, again, the Republicans have done, they've had three years, they had two years of total control. And the only thing they did when they had total control was to pass a massive tax cut to help wealthy people and wealthy corporations. And now when we get to infrastructure, what they're saying is we can't afford to do it. Democrats say we can't afford not to do it. Just to finish up, I'm not a fan of the horse race or the mudslinging, but I want to ask in 2020, uh, is if it's more of a missile than a gunfight, what are the Democrats going to come to fight with? Well, we're, we're going to fight with the facts. And we're going to fight with an army of people across this country. And we're going to fight about the values and character of America. We're going to fight for an America in which everybody has an opportunity to realize the American dream. We're fighting for an America in which we have shared prosperity, not just prosperity for the 1%, but prosperity for everyone. We're going to fight for an America in which when you work a 40-hour week, you can feed your family. One good job should be enough. An America in which women have control over their bodies. Dreamers can dream. Comprehensive immigration reform becomes a reality. So we are, again, a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants. An America in which prosperity exists everywhere, where we don't pit one group against another. The divisiveness of this president has made us less safe, less secure, less respected. And that's what Democrats are going to restore. We're going to restore the American dream for everyone. We're going to restore our standing in the world because we've abdicated moral authority with such regularity. And we're going to fight to win in every zip code across this country. We made tremendous progress in 2017 and 2018. We're going to continue that progress into 2020. Orange County is a great example of the progress we've made. And we're going to continue that not only in 2020, but we're going to continue this progress across the country because our democracy, as we know it, is on the ballot. This is the most dangerous president, certainly of my lifetime. And we need to send a message to the world that we are indeed the United States of America, not the divided states of America. Speaking in this segment of Ask a Leader was my guest, Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez. Tom Perez, thank you. I really appreciate your taking the time today. Okay. Have a nice day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was Tom Press. I had to record that uh, a bit over a week ago, and so lots of stuff was breaking after that recording. So it wasn't, I wasn't trying to dodge the topical. I just wanted to keep it broadly uh, policy-based kind of a discussion. That's why I usually give you guys very, very live fresh shows, and we're going to keep doing that in the second segment. I am currently working with Republican National Committee to secure an interview with their chairwoman, Ronna Romney Daniels. And again, everybody, put March 3rd, California's primary, that's the federal and state offices, March 3rd, put it on your calendar. We'll be right back after a station break with Kaylee Levitt, Zero Waste Collective, Orange County Maven, on how we could rethink our consumerism. It's never too late, folks. Or should I really say, we're just getting started. Thank you for staying tuned. That's Jared Gold's Reemergence, the title track on that. Thank you for staying tuned. My next guest is 
Kaylee Levitt, here to help us think ever more critically about our relationship to waste. She's the founder of Zero Waste Collective Orange County. She founded in October 2018 to organize the community around new ways to reduce waste as well as reuse and repurpose items. She organizes meetings around ways to minimize waste, such as clothing swaps, knowledge skill share meetings on how to avoid waste when grocery shopping, how to properly sort recyclables, and crafty ways to upcycle. The group currently has about 40 members plus, and meetings are organized on their Facebook group. So we'll, she'll tell us at the end how best to follow her. The meetings occur locally in Orange County. Kaylee is also active with Citizens Climate Lobby. She completed her bachelor's degree in environmental studies, liberal arts from Soka University, but just based on addressing environmental issues through a broad study of the arts and sciences. After her experience co-leading tourism groups with trained local guides, Kaylee learned how the community could later measure the impact of tourism on the community after the course of a year. In her thesis project, she studied the rhetoric of the Laguna Coast Wilderness Park activist movement within the history of wilderness and suburban design. Her take in her own words, and I quote, I concluded that understanding the historical context of nature as an idea could move ecological politics beyond common themes of progress versus preservation. Kaylee joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Kaylee Levitt. Hello, thank you for having me. I am so glad to be here today. I feel honored. Oh, please, I'm so glad you're here because this this is the refrain I return to whenever I can, not just when my mic is live, but when I am, I'm speaking truth to uh, grassroots power, truth to all sorts of hospitality power and, and consumer settings. So, well, even if zero sounds a little spare, aspiring minds turn our thoughts critically on what we're we're going to be blasting through today. So what's the zero collective, zero waste collective based in Canada? What's the chapter charter for you? Yes. So for me, it's important that we are coming together to talk about these issues because so often we feel isolated um, when facing these giant environmental problems. I mean, the scale is enough to make you feel like you're going crazy noticing um, how many issues we have, you know, left and right. We're just bombarded with environmental data on degradation. And I think it's important um, to come together in times like these and to find community and in order to build local power and feel like there is a sense of political will beyond just your own life. So Zero Waste organizes around, there's, there's, we hear the, always the three R's. And so I want to know what your refrain is, because I, right. I think, because we, we've covered how little recycling is getting done anymore. Yes. So you're working with reduce reuse and then recycle is sort of like the last option let's help right. help listeners sort of organize around paring it down and with that construct exactly so yeah like you said most things that we're recycling is not getting recycled in california we're doing pretty well maybe like 20 percent of what we send to recycling gets recycled but that's uh way more almost double what actually gets recycled uh, for the rest of the world it's about nine percent of what gets sent um, and yeah, I mean, the most important thing 
that we can do is really think about um, what it takes to live in a disposable culture. So, you know, for example, um, here in L.A. County, on a daily basis, we have about 50,000 tons of waste, and that's enough to fill an entire Dodger stadium. So everything that's disposable, it doesn't ever just go away. Right. And, and while, right. while you talk about that, I'm really concerned that it sort of sanitizes our sensibilities about what we are, what are the externalities? What's, what's the byproduct of what we bought and where it's going. And so if it's all trucked away, whether it's trucked, I mean, as soon as it leaves our home, we don't even think about its accumulation. So does zero waste address about how to make our waste more visible? Just have like our, like a feedback. Yeah, exactly. Having feedback is so important um, because this concept of a way really makes it seem like it's going somewhere and the concept of recycling seems like it's sort of returning to the earth. There's this general greenwashing that happens um, and we can't really get away from that. So like you said, having visibility of what happens in the waste cycle is huge for feeling responsible for it. So just yesterday I went to a composting and recycling um, sort of like demystified uh, session with one of the waste management spe- specialists in Orange County. Oh, really? Yeah. Just, just in. Tell us. Yeah. So it was great. I mean, she had a table in front of her um, showing all the different things that you can and can't recycle because, I mean, you can't really get general information. You have to get local information about what's being taken. So um, she was able to tell us that here in California, we only really recycle plastics number one and two. But online, when I was researching this, there's information that says California recycles plastics one through seven. So online. So who's online reporting that? So yeah, who's crossing it's, that? It's um. I think I did some sort of general Google search like California, what's accepted in recycling when I was just starting to try and gather research on my own. Okay. And then I met um, someone who is organizing in a similar way as me, zero waste enthusiast. She put together this event got someone from our local waste management company to come and tell us what's actually getting recycled. But the most powerful part of the presentation was the fact that she had on the table all laid out different things that we use and it it kind of looked like a pile of trash, but she was sorting through it saying, okay, this can be composted, this can be recycled. When it gets recycled, only 10% of this bottle gets recycled. There was this sense of including what's away and putting it right in front of our face in a way that really brought us closer to something that usually there's so much distance between. She also had a composting demo um, there and she showed us the end product and she said, yeah, there might be some eggshells in there, but this is great to put on your yard. But this idea of, of really seeing things through all the way to the end and it doesn't always look perfect and clean. And when you're you know, usually seeing really aesthetic environmental things. A lot of times it looks very organized and clean. But when it comes to being responsible for your waste, it it doesn't actually feel like that. It's it's a lot of, you know, washing jars and and kind of like putting things together in a messy way and and reusing stuff that wasn't ever thought necessary to reuse. Like it wasn't designed to be reused in the first place. So, Kayla, I'm wondering if there isn't a tool 
but it's it's hard to get everybody's attention but we can start somewhere that a tool that would show a flow chart and it would like you you put gave us the eggshells or mm-hmm. we got the the plastics and the paper and all that but the flow chart and show where it drops off where, right. where it pulls off the the continuum of moving through uh where we absolutely. live on this planet yeah absolutely i mean i think what's been really impactful for me is um thinking about what's happening for the recycling industry now that china stopped uh buying right. it's our it. recyclables. it's over 2018 done exactly done and so now there's this there's this sort of massive influx. It's not very organized. People are just kind of sending their trash to third world countries. Incinerating. And incinerating in it. Place. And there's a lot of resistance towards that, which is why um, China stopped taking a lot of it because people were organizing against waste incineration. And so I think it's really important to remember that anything that is disposable assumes that there is land to Land, air, or water. Exactly. To Land take to landfill in. it, air to incinerate it, or right. water to let it drift off. Exactly. Too. And so it's actually, um, this is something that we talked about briefly, which maybe we don't need to go into too much here, but it's actually a very colonial mindset to assume that you have access to land that you never were granted permission to by having these disposable items. So... Um, just sort of shifting out of that mindset is really key in thinking sort of what's the bottom line for zero waste. Because, for example, if you buy compostable bags, there's something in the fine print on the bag that says it can only be composted in an industrial composter, which assumes that you have access to land to be able to build an industrial composter to compost it. But at the end of the day, that doesn't meet the bottom line for zero waste. It looks like it does. It's all green and it, you know, but if you put it in your backyard compost bin, which again assumes you have land to be able to do that, it won't break down for years. How long? Over three years. Okay. So. But it does break down three years. Even over that. The woman who was giving the presentation yesterday said that she tried and never saw it break down. So we just have to think through like. Just because it says compostable doesn't mean that it's zero waste. We really want to shift away from disposable culture. We want to always think about how we can reuse, repurpose, repair, take care of items so that they can be used in perpetuity. So I guess marketing is what you're talking about. Is it's the way it's the packages are packaged for us to buy in. So. Greenpeace got a win yesterday with their having uh, importuned Coca-Cola and PepsiCo that they, they're ending their membership with the Plastics Industry Association, which advocated against plastic bans around the country. So, so that's one sort of part of, of marketing and re- repackaging the packages. So they felt the pressure from activists from consumers so that this all this marketing is it's the headwinds it's Mm -hmm. the it's like a huge genie Mm -hmm. out of the bottle and when i was looking up around i i guess the big push was around 1956 Mm. to make everybody because we didn't we weren't sucking on this teat of plastic consumption before the 50s we we figured out how to do it before then so For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Kaylee Levitt, local activist 
with Zero Waste Collective Orange County running up a list of paring down our waste possibilities. They're infinite, as we know. So let's talk. uh, We've got a window of opportunity, listeners tuning in here, that there's this massive consumption for getting back to school, and the average household payout is about 700 bucks to get ready for school. So that's a way for reusing. You know, they, there could be so many things could be repurposed and reused. It doesn't have to be the shiny brand new everything. So is there a campaign to talk with households about how to reconsider back to school? Yeah, so I run into these sort of dilemmas on a daily basis where I'm confronting the way I was raised to address certain things such as uh, seasonal change of what I'm wearing or, you know, in embarking on some sort of uh, project of any kind will always make me think the easiest choice is to choose something that's rather disposable. And so I would say with the zero waste movement, I'm kind of seeing two common scenarios um one you if you do buy something you pick something that is very um easy to repair very well made and something that you can continue it's durable durable, and that you can if you're gonna buy something you really think about having something that can last so that you're not buying for example a new backpack every year Um, But a lot of things aren't made with that intention because we've been living in this disposable culture for so long now. So we don't even know it. We don't even know it. It's so sneaky. It's so sneaky. And it's happened so at least in our span of time, it's happened kind of slowly enough to where it just seems natural at this point. Um, So So then the other thing I'll mention is really being okay with reusing things that may seem odd to reuse uh getting crafty about how to repair things so for example a backpack if it looks really dirty and tattered i would encourage you to feel empowered to learn how to clean it learn how to repair it and reuse things that weren't even intended to be used for a long time so that's been something that um i've taken on as well so whether it's buying something with that mindset or reusing things with that mindset um always trying to think about you know, what's at the end of the waste stream and including that in my purchases or how I live my daily life. And so a component Mm -hmm. of the back to school is the apparel, Mm -hmm. which is mainly fast fashion. We were talking a little bit about that in preparation. So does Zero Waste take up the fast fashion banner and say, folks, come on. So, I mean, you're talking about uh, swapping clothing. Absolutely. So one of our biggest events that we had was a clothes swap. And those are, you know, it's kind of a fun way to rethink about shopping, I would say, because that's usually an isolated experience. But in all my experiences doing clothes swaps, it's been really fun and you're able to connect with people while doing it. So it's something that I guess we can think about um, not only what kind of experiences do we want to have, do we want to have more social, collectively driven experiences Um, which is something that a clothes swap kind of does, but also what kind of environment do we want to have? Usually we can give something a new life very easily by swapping it, whereas if it gets donated at a thrift store, a lot of that ends up getting thrown away, unfortunately. And one of the biggest um, sort of forms of waste is textile waste. So fast fashion is a huge uh, component of that. And so um, I think that, 
yeah, again, it's just sort of taking a moment to pause and reflect on what's important. And I think uh, a clothes swap includes two things that are very important, both reusing things and also the importance of having a social group that you can um, create value in sort of an unlikely way. And I also learned with some of this fast fashion that there are plastics that people think, oh, fine, it can be. But the, all of those plastic pieces of apparel are shedding plastic product. Absolutely. Do you, and is that part of the Zero Waste Collective's education campaign? Yeah, I would love to explore more of that in the future. We haven't talked about it directly, but yeah, textiles is included um, or has plastic included in them. And I guess this sort of points to the concept of I would like to make a distinction between uh, making changes for environmental harm and making changes on behalf of environmental violence. Um, This is something that a great scientist I follow named Max Leboyron, she talks about this. And uh, basically, she says that environmental harm, reducing and managing that means looking at sort of like the end of the line, like how much plastic is leaching into the ocean from these textiles? How can we reduce that? Okay, have clothes swaps so you're buying less clothes. But then in terms of addressing environmental violence, that's looking at where the source is. So the only industry right now that is contributing to plastic waste is the plastic industry. And that comes from the base of that is petroleum. And so when we look at where to sort of direct and be most effective, obviously it comes down to making systemic change against what's producing the environmental violence. And when it comes down to this sort of tinkering that we're doing in terms of managing environmental harm, that's where we see these social groups and these these different sort of daily habits that we can do, which is very important because that is a real physical thing that's going to go somewhere. And I also would say it's very important to build political community and to feel that you're connected and to even meet with any intentional purpose, I think, can be very radical in its effect. So I think there's there's sort of two sides to think about it. Well, building political community, I'm kind of, I want, to, I want some acculturation around consumption. I don't know if it's, I don't think of it as political. Maybe it is. But, and I, you know, looking at what fast fashion, what it, what you really get from that versus maybe going to some of the more vintage choices you're, you're getting. It's a, it's a higher quality product. This mm-hmm. fast fashion is really, it, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think it, there's it, any, there's as much value as the, the, those right. treasures and in the reuse arena. Exactly. And that's why I say it it is political because it's asserting a value that is not being inherently supported by the majority and creating community around that in your social group. Because um, something that I heard from a great teacher once was that in order to make great systemic change, the foundation of that is all relationships. Because within every system is human relationships. That's what's upholding these systems. And um, to really see the power in our relationships, I think, is what motivated me. And I've always felt that the most influential people in my lives were my friends. So I think that, you know, it's something that I I felt like there is power there. And I think we need to remember that when we're up against these giant problems that seem so overwhelming. So let's talk to that relationship part because there could be, it's relationships of 
with whom we're familiar and not familiar, and I think I scored a big loss in how I approached my concern about the outcome of an enterprise. And in the Los Angeles Times was an entrepreneur showcased where she is offering a product, and in the picture showcased in this coverage was a mountain of her packaging that was obviously it was going to be shipped out. It was not it wasn't solid waste, but it was going to end up being solid waste. So, Kaylee, tell me what uh, you think is a, the better approach than I tried to call. I called the firm, yes. and the firm I think heard uh, an embedded scold message before I was able to talk to anybody in yes. the, either their chief operating officer or some marketing people. I was I wanted to talk to somebody, and so what is it that you recommend then right. in these relationships, familiar unfamiliar connections right. we're making? Totally. So with when seeing a new company, a new enterprise pop up and and kind of uh, they're so full of promise so and hope promise. and they're so enterprising exactly. and successful and and seeing that it doesn't share the same values that you'd like to see right. in your culture, I would say that for me personally, taking each company on one by one seems like a lot of work. Um, and for the group that I am involved in, I probably wouldn't feel like, that was as effective as say trying to address things in a in a in the form of policy because that's how we've seen all great you know those are the inroads. cultural changes but at the same time i think there is something to be said for having for holding these companies accountable the way that greenpeace is because for example that has a sort of effect on it's so plastic lobbying because it they are no longer partnering with someone who is lobbying against um, plastic bag bans. So so basically what I'm saying is I'm very motivated by seeing all these individual companies make those kinds of changes. I think it shows symbols that help give people that motivation and help influence the political will. And it ultimately helps, you know, actual government see that there is will for that and decide that it's worth making a policy for because they won't make a policy until they see political will in their community. So I think that it is important for them to hear from us. But I also would say if you have extra energy that, you know, it may not be like the first place to direct it and and maybe feel like it's so effective because, yeah, people will feel scolded and they may not um, it, it just may not get as much of a result. So there's kind of like... Backfires. Yeah, there's kind of a, a lot of different approaches. But but I would say that ultimately, if you're if you feel passionate about it and you care about it and you're expressing that in your relationships, known and unknown, it is, it is definitely valuable. Well, the gentleman that is swimming into the Great Pacific Plastic Patch, I think it's Ben LeConte. A quote from him, uh, I believe, or the coverage of that was, and this could be a talking point in our establishing connections with reducing at various levels of this production. But he's called, the ocean is now filled with microplastics. It's not like you've got Mm -hmm. your milk jug bobbing in the water. It's broken down into microplastics. So what they were saying in this coverage is rather than calling it an island of trash, it's more like plastic smog throughout the ocean. Mm. So maybe that talking point is something that will get people's attention, help people right. organize their 
response. I think acts like that are great for getting attention because it really collapses the distance between you as a person and that great Pacific garbage patch because, you know, you are actually seeing and hearing a story of a person going through that and you can kind of empathize and imagine what it's like. Um, And I think that so often we're so distant from from these environmental issues that that's a very effective way to try and promote environmental activism um, to sort of show that collapsing of that distance. So we really do have to close. Kaylee, I'd like for you to let us know well, we're, I'm going to collapse, all, and you can take which ones you want with mm-hmm. this collapse sort of question. is how Well, first, how people can follow you. Yeah. Uh, Zero Waste Collective Orange County. It's a Facebook group. Um, you'll request to join because it's a private group right now. Um, Keep that trolling away. But yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And uh, other ways to follow you? Are, there's the, the general organization, zerowastecollective.com, is maybe the kind of broader organizational place to, to follow too the um, international that one's not mine it's but another not, one but it's the but lo- yeah so the orange county so one is i want to know kaylee where are you taking this activism and yeah. tell us some uh, upcoming events okay so i would say sort of as like a general call to action create groups in whatever community you're a part of in your office and you know just sort of see the people around you and if they also care about it then decide to officially form a group because that's been really effective for me both in my office and in my personal life. And I'll be uh, collaborating with some other zero waste enthusiasts and hosting monthly events. Um, That's my goal. And so if you join our group and are in Orange County, then I hope to see you at one of our future events. Okay. Well, Kaylee Levitt, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much. Kaylee Levitt was my guest in the second half. She's a local activist with Zero Waste Collective and letting us know how to rethink how we're paring down and we're throttling up people's attention. So that's my wrap. Next week, I'm going to have Ana Gonzalez, Public Affairs Director at our local Planned Parenthood. She's ready to answer all my wide-eyed public health questions with all the late breaking news here. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone for listening.